Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Arcade News Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Hansen. Now, first and foremost, before we get into the news, I would like to announce that we have a Stone Pages Facebook group. It is called the Stone Pages Megalithic Sites of Europe. I'm sure you'll be able to find us just easily, and we will have to accept you into the group, but I'm sure everybody should be fine. So far, it's been very great. People have been sharing some of their favorite megalithic monuments, and it is definitely a nice sight to see and actually interact with our audience a little bit. Second off, I would like to announce in true David Connolly fashion that I'm actually on an excavation, currently excavating Neolithic, Iron Age, and Bronze Age settlements in Denmark, all of which are very nicely prehistoric, even up to around 500 AD mark. Now, as always, the stories for today have been gathered from various sources from across the web. However, we've made a slight change to the website. Now, when you go to news.stonepages.com, you will see that some of the stories actually have links to the original article, which saves you a lot of time searching around on the internet for the article that we've used. This is very great, and I'm definitely enjoying that addition to the website, and I'm sure that you will enjoy it too. So let's see what we're going to be listening to today. First off, we have a story on Stonehenge and the people living in the area of Salisbury Plains and where they originated from. After that, we have a bit more of a cultural trek, namely looking at Homo sapien drawings and one of the oldest ones in the world. Following that, we have some examples of early child labor in and around Europe as well as in Canada. Following that, we'll be having a look at a 3,400-year-old Minoan tomb and then the largest concentration of pottery to be found in Scotland. Going from Scotland, we'll be going directly to Israel, where we'll be looking at the Natafian communities and their early evidence of beer brewing. And then we'll have a look at some Neolithic climates, and last but certainly not least, we'll be looking at a 7,200-year-old cheese that was found in Croatia. Now, for our first story of today's podcast, what would the Stone Pages podcast be without a Stonehenge story? And this time we try to answer whether or not the people buried at Stonehenge actually came from the area or if they were Welsh. This comes as the result of recent analysis of cremated human remains that were excavated from Stonehenge in 2008. And the analysis have shown that some of the individuals buried at the Neolithic monument may have spent some of their lives in Western Britain or even Western Wales which is the same region where the Stonehenge bluestones are believed to have come from. Now, the individuals that were examined from this isotope analysis were done so uh, based on an excavation done by William Hawley between 1919 and 1926. Here he found up to 58 individual cremations that were unearthed during his excavation. However, they were subsequently interred in a single pit, which was then re-excavated in 2008. From this, they could uh, find at least 25 individuals, and from the recovered remains, all were radiocarbon dated and they were dated to a period between 3,180 to 2,965 BCE and 2,565 to 2,380 BCE. This would place the burials at the earlier stages of the monument's construction and a period where the cremation of bodies were a common practice in England. Now, as I mentioned before, these bodies have been subjected to isotope analysis, and this is to find out where the individuals came from. Strontium isotopes provide useful information to the person's whereabouts in the last decade or so before their death and remain preserved even in cremated bone. For those of you who may have followed the story of the Eggville girl, you'll know that there is also a difference between doing isotope analysis on hairs versus teeth, where hairs they show a more short-term change and the teeth show a much more long-form type of change. 
Now, from this, they could determine that 15 individuals had ratios that were consistent with the chalky geology found at Stonehenge, and for at least 15 kilometers in any direction from the monument. This would suggest that in the years leading up to their deaths, they most likely obtained much of their diet from, and probably lived in, the local area. Now, the other 10 individuals yielded very different results, and three of these had isotope ratios that were so dissimilar to the Stonehenge area that they were unlikely to obtain any of their diet from this region. Instead, their isotopes point to older lithologies and keep more in line with parts of Devon and Wales, especially Western Wales. The other seven had isotopes values between the two and reflected a diet that came from both Wales and Wessex. This would lend further credence to the belief that during the Neolithic period, there was a strong connection between Western Wales and Salisbury Plain, which included the movement of both materials and people to and from the monument. And now for the second story, it's a uh, subject that's pretty close to my heart or has gotten pretty close to my heart uh, from doing these podcasts. It's uh, namely about the Homo sapiens and their drawings. Now, while Homo sapiens are known to be some of the oldest artists we have, they are just as abstract as some of our modern artists. And the Flick Rock from South Africa's Blombus Cave, that's been dated to 73,000 years BP, that's before present or 1950 for those of you keeping track, uh, is no exception. The pattern is a cross hatch of nine lines, which has been traced with a piece of ochre. And the work is at least 30,000 years older than the earliest previously known abstract and figurative drawings executed by Homo sapiens that use the same technique. Now, the uh, drawing was a very surprising find by archaeologist Dr. Luca Polaro, who is an honorary research fellow at the University of Witwatersrand. Blompus Cave is a very old walked archaeological site and has been excavated by Professor Christopher Henschel Wood and Dr. Karen Van Nikiak since 1991 and contains materials dating from between 100,000 to 70,000 years ago, which is the Middle Stone Age, as well as younger, later Stone Age material dating from between 2,000 and as recently as 300 years ago. Under the guidance of Professor Francesco D'Arico from the University of Bordeaux, the team was able to examine and photograph the piece under a microscope to establish whether the lines were part of the stone or applied to it. Through experimenting with various techniques, they found that the drawings were made with an ochre crayon or pencil with a tip of between 1 to 3 millimeters. And the erupt terminations of the lines on the edge of the flake suggest that the pattern originally extended over a larger surface and may have been much more complex than what we see today. Professor Henschel Wood noted that before this discovery, Paleolithic archaeologists have for a long time been convinced that the unambiguous symbols first appeared when Homo sapiens entered Europe about 40,000 years ago and later replaced local Neanderthals. The recent archaeological discoveries in Africa, Europe, and Asia in which members of our team have often participated to support a much earlier emergence for the production and use of symbols. The archaeological layers in which the Blombus drawing was found also yielded other shell beads that were covered with ochre and pieces of ochre engraved with abstract pattern, some of which closely resemble the one on the stone flake. For our next story, we will be revisiting a topic that I believe has been covered in the past. I can't remember if it was either by me or it was by our old host, uh, David Connolly. This story focuses specifically on the idea of children uh, actually working more than we previously believed, especially during prehistoric periods. 
Now, until recently, researchers have paid very little attention to children in the archaeological record. However, in the 1990s, more archaeologists began to examine the roles of women, which then led to studying other groups uh, such as children. Sadly, artifacts and skeletal remains that provide details of child labor from long-ago periods are still very scarce. However, the surge of interest in studying children through the archaeological record have revealed that uh, youngsters did actually work a lot more than previously thought. During the excavations of ancient salt mines in Hallstatt, Austria, uh, child-sized leather caps that were dated to between 1300 and 1000 BCE along with very small mining picks, were uncovered. This was then used to suggest that children were working in these mines at least two centuries earlier than previously thought. To confirm this hypothesis, archaeologist Hans Reichreiter at the National History Museum of Vienna and his colleagues planned to test the human excrement found in the Bronze Age section for sex hormones, which young children would lack. Evidence for child labor in other countries has also been discovered, such as by archaeologist Melie Leroy at the Mediterranean Laboratory of Prehistory in Europe and Africa, who analyzed a jumble of skeletal remains from prehistoric tombs in France. Through this study, she found three baby teeth that had cylindrical grooves which match uh, something that's formed when people repeatedly use their teeth for stretching and softening animal tendons or plant materials most likely when used for sewing or making baskets. These teeth belonged to two children, no older than nine, and were dated to between 3500 and 2100 BCE, which is then the oldest evidence for children engaged in skilled labor. Leroy is about to start surveying human remains from more than 30 French burial sites uh, from the same time period and hopes to find more evidence of young children at work. The evidence of child labor is not just limited to a few sites in Europe. There is also an archaeologist from across the pond at the University of Toronto in Canada named Stephen Dorland, who has examined ceramic sherds from a prehistoric village dating to the 15th century BCE in what is now southern Canada. Here he saw minuscule fingernail marks and the sizes of which showed that kids aged six or younger were forming the clay vessels. Now, what is remarkable about these vessels is that they were fired along with the other pots, as opposed to modern-day communities where only pots of certain qualities would be put in the kiln. Child labor, though, is not just limited to the prehistoric eras. From a Lithuanian castle, there are bricks and roof tiles that have been excavated, dating from the uh, 13th to the 17th century CE, that bear fingerprints of their young creators. Analysis of these ceramic pieces suggests that children between the ages of 8 and 13 made more than 10% of the recovered building materials. For our next story, we go back to somewhere between 1400 and 1200 BCE, where two Minoan men were laid to rest in an underground enclosure carved out of the soft limestone native to the southeast of Crete. Both of these men were entombed within Larnakes, which are intricately embossed clay coffins popular in Bronze Age Minoan societies, and were surrounded by the colorful funerary vases that hinted at this high status of their owners. A site was eventually sealed with stone masonry and forgotten, leaving the deceased undisturbed for up to 3,400 years. However, 
This does not stop modern man and archaeologists like ourselves from disturbing their peace, uh, most notably by a local farmer who accidentally found a tomb beneath a shaded olive grove on his property. Archaeologists from the local heritage ministry, La Ceti Eforate of Antiquities, launched excavations below the farmer's olive grove at Ruzes, which is a small village just northeast of Kentry, Lerapeta. They identified the Minoan tomb, which was nearly perfectly preserved in a pit measuring roughly four feet across and eight feet deep. The interior of the space was divided into three carved niches, accessible by a vertical trench. In the northernmost niche of the burial site, archaeologists found a coffin and an array of vessels that were scattered across the ground. The southernmost niche yielded a second sealed coffin as well as 14 ritual Greek jars called amphorae and a bowl. The high quality of the pottery left within the tomb indicate that all the individuals here were of a very high status, even if other burial sites dating to the same late Minoan period feature more elaborate beehive-style combs. Sadly, much of the Minoan's history remains unclear, and this is definitely not helped by the eruption of the Thera volcano, an earthquake, and a tsunami because some people have all the luck in the world, all of which contributed to the group's downfall, enabling their enemies such as the Mycenaeans to easily invade. It is believed that further analysis of the excavated Kedentry tomb may offer further insights on the Minoan-Mycenaean rivalry as well as the Cretan civilization's eventual demise. Now, being a pottery nerd and having just talked about the beautiful Minoan vessels, let's go to Scotland and look at the largest find of prehistoric pottery, which shows the remains of more than 200 prehistoric eating bowls and cooking vessels. These were found on land at Meadowen Farm near Clackamanan, about 40 kilometers northwest of Edinburgh. The collection spans more than 2,000 years, with the oldest piece dating to around 4,000 BCE and the fragments help reveal the diet of their respective owners, which may have included yogurt, butter, and cheese, as well as roasted hazelnuts and toasted barley. The more than 2,000 sherds were found across two fields and rubbish pits dug by the uh, site's earliest known inhabitants, and Julie Franklin of Headland Archaeology, who published the report, says the pieces were in such good condition, and they just kept coming. We wondered when it was going to stop. Normally, you might come across some shirts or a couple of larger pieces, but we had so much of the stuff. When we knew most of the pottery Neolithic, we knew we had found something important. It was the biggest collection of this kind of Neolithic pottery ever found in Scotland. Now, most of the finds belong to the Middle Neolithic group known as Imprestware, which date from around 3300 BCE to 3000 BCE, with the largest collection from this area ever found in Scotland. One of the materials used in the vessels was crushed quartz dolerite, which is found very closely to the site. And Julie Franklin adds to this point, we don't understand the organization of Neolithic pottery industry that well, but it was really quite uh, finely made. It is clearly visible that a substantial number of pots were used for cooking, with charred hazelnut shells, oats, and burnt cereal grains being found across the site. Analysis of a round-bottom carinated bowl also shows the vessel once contained milk-derived fats. And the report states that the discovery demonstrates once more that Scotland's early farmers were dairy farmers, exploiting the domesticated cattle not only for their meat, but also for their secondary products. While this may sound odd, and the Neolithic period of the area were likely to be lactose intolerant, it is believed that they were most likely able to digest yogurt, butter, and cheese. Apart from the more than 2,000 shirts of pottery, there was also evidence of six Bronze Age roundhouses that were discovered on the site. 
And coming from the reports in Scotland, we'll now be heading off to Israel, where a 13,000-year-old brewery has recently been discovered. Here, the earliest evidence of alcohol production has been discovered in the Rockefeller Cave on Mount Carmel. Probably a kind of beer made from fermented grains, the brew was produced by Natufians who lived in the region at the time. The Epipaleolithic Natufian culture, try saying that 10 times fast, existed from around 13,050 to 7,550 BCE in the Levant, and was unusual in that it supported a sedentary or semi-sedentary population before the introduction of agriculture. It is believed that the Natufian communities may have been the ancestors of the builders of the first Neolithic settlements in the region, which may have been the earliest ones in the world. They are also believed to have founded Jericho, which is considered the oldest city in the world by many. There is actually some evidence that suggests that the Natufian cultivation of cereals at Tel Abu Huria in what is now northern Syria is the site of the earliest evidence of agriculture in the world. Mount Carmel was one of the most important and crowded areas in the system of Natufian settlements, and sites there and in the surrounding areas have been studied for decades. The excavation of the site was led by Professor Danny Nadell of the University of Haifa, who says the Rakafet Cave does not stop offering new discoveries about the wonderful Natufian culture. We have already discovered that they buried their dead and that they lined their graves with a bed of flowers. We have discovered their technological capabilities through a variety of tools, and now we find that they produced beer and consumed it, apparently at special ceremonies. Another finding at the Rockefeller Cave site were dozens of craters that were carved several centimeters deep in the rock. Upon testing, one of the tests revealed the evidence of several grains stored in these craters, which included wheat, barley, oatmeal, legumes, and flax. Other tests also show remains of starch uh, grains that underwent changes, which correspond to fermentation. Craters were used to store grains before and after fermentation and for crushing and grinding of grains. Remnants of fibers found at the bottom of the craters indicate that they were also stored in woven baskets. Moving from Israel and directly up into Turkey, we find a new study that reveals how Neolithic people adapted to climate change. The study was centered on the Neolithic and Chalcolithic city in Katalhoyuk in southern Anatolia, Turkey, which existed from approximately 7500 BCE to 5700 BCE. During the height of the city's occupation, there was a well-documented climate change event around 8200 years ago and resulted in a decrease in global temperatures, which was caused by the release of huge amounts of glacial meltwater from a massive freshwater lake in northern Canada. Through an examination of the animal bones excavated at the site, scientists could conclude that the herders of the city turned towards sheep and goats at the time, as these animals were more drought-resistant than cattle. And the study of cut marks on the animal bones informed on the butchery practices. The high number of such marks at the time of the climate event showed that the population worked on exploiting any available meat due to the food scarcity. Uh, apart from looking at the bones, the authors of the study also examined the animal fat surviving in ancient cooking pots, where they detected the presence of ruminant carcass fats. Through this, they deducted that the isotopic information which was carried in the hydrogen atoms of the fat was reflective of that of the ancient precipitation. The change in hydrogen signal was detected in the period that corresponded directly to the climate event and thus suggested changes in precipitation patterns at the time.
Dr. Melanie Rofetzalk, who is the lead author of the paper, said, This is the first time that such information is derived from cooking pots. We've used a signal carried by the hydrogen atoms from animal fats trapped in the pottery vessel after cooking. This opens up a completely new avenue of investigation, the reconstruction of past climate at the very location where people lived using pottery. A co-author of the study, Professor Richard Evershed, added, It is really significant that the climate models of the event are in complete agreement with the H signals we see in the animal fats preserved in the pots. The models point to seasonal changes farmers would have had to adapt to, which would have inevitably impact on the agriculture. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for the last story of today's podcast. An international team of researchers has recently analyzed the fatty residue in pottery from the Dalmatian coast of Croatia and revealed evidence of fermented dairy products, soft cheeses, and yogurt from around 7,200 years ago. Sarah B. McClure, who is an associate professor of anthropology, is quoted as saying, This pushes back cheesemaking by 4,000 years. Now, finding milk in pottery in this area is seen as early as 7,700 years ago, 500 years earlier than the fermented products. The DNA analysis of the population shows that the adults were lactose intolerant, but the children remained able to consume milk comfortably up to the age of 10. McClure added, first we have milking, and it was probably geared for kids because it's a good source of hydration and is relatively pathogen-free. It wouldn't be a surprise for people to give children milk from another mammal. However, about 500 years later, the researchers see a shift, and not just only from pure milk to fermented products, but also in the style and form of the pottery vessels. Cheese production is important enough that people are making new types of kitchenware, said McClure. We are seeing that cultural shift. The researchers studied pottery from two sites in Croatia in Dalmatia, Pokrovnik and Danilo Bitinj. I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> uh, when possible, they selected samples from unwashed pottery, but because some of the pottery forms are rarer, they used washed samples for the sieves. The pottery was tested for any residue that might be in them, specifically carbon isotopes that can indicate the type of fat and can distinguish between meat, fish, milk, and fermented milk products. The researchers found that dairying may have opened northern European areas for farming because it reduced infant mortality and allowed for earlier weaning, decreasing the birth interval, and potentially increasing the population. It would also have supplied a storable form of nutrition for adults because the fermentation of cheese and yogurt reduced the lactose content of milk products, thereby making it palatable for adults as well as children. With such a food source, they could then buffer the risk of farming in colder northern climates and therefore the farmers could expand their territories. And with that last story on cheese, we have sadly ended today's podcast. But don't worry, there's more. As I mentioned before, you can always follow us on the Stone Pages Facebook group. That is the Stone Pages Megalithic Sites of Europe on Facebook. And you can also follow us on the newsletter, which you can sign up for at news.stonepages.com. While you're there, you can also check out the sources to today's stories and any stories that we may have missed. And trust me, there are quite a few. As always, thank you for listening. My name has been Philip Hansen, and I will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>